Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. This is Evan Van Ness with On Ethereum Podcast. I'm here with Carl Kreider and Alex Miller from Grid Plus, a, a consensus formation. Full disclosure, I also am work for consensus, so you, you should know that. I imagine that you already know that if you are listening to this podcast, but just in case you don't, now you do. I guess I wanted to start by having you describe in a very simple, maybe one sentence, what is Grid Plus? Well, Evan, um, this is Carl. I just want to say thanks for having us on. And so Grid Plus, in, in one sentence, Grid Plus is going to be a blockchain-based utility or electricity retail provider, and it is going to allow its customers to buy and sell their energy and settle it in real time using a blockchain. I guess like, let's talk about like basics of, of energy markets and electricity markets. I'll give a little bit that, that I've prepared here and you can jump in and correct me if you disagree. What's, what's really important to understand about power markets is that they always demand has to equal supply, as in the power that is generated has to be consumed essentially in real time you always have to have that balanced out because if you don't, then really bad things happen to the grid and, you know, even potentially like that's where, you know, shorting out your refrigerator and power surging and, and all that comes from. So, so power is generated and it flows downhill and nothing is stored. Um, so it has to be balanced perfectly. I think that's like worth repeating because if you, if you don't understand that as, as you're listening, talking about electricity markets might not make any sense. How'd I do? There's more uh, to talk yeah, about. No, I, yeah, I, th I, think, I think that kind of explains the, the dynamics that, that make the electricity markets and managing the electrical grid you know, relatively complicated. And the facts that things have to be balanced sort of necessitates this idea of real-time control and uh, real-time responsiveness is uh, helps with that control. So I think that's a good explanation. I think the other thing that is like useful to understand is, maybe there's two other things. One is that there, the demand is, is definitely much different throughout the day. It, and it peaks, you know, when people get home from work because, you know, there's still industrial and commercial that is using power, but then residential is also using a lot of power. But beyond that, there are, from the supply side also, like solar is only available during the day and wind is all day, but, but not days. So you have, you know, the gas and the coal um, being the swing producer. And that's why power markets are so much different between spot markets, which is buying electricity in real time at the, at the, at the point of use, and then the day ahead markets, which is literally the day before selling power then. How do I do? Anything, to, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's interesting that you're highlighting is that renewable energy resources uh, such as wind and solar have a degree of unpredictability with how they generate, so what we refer to as intermittent generation. The other suppliers on the grid, coal, nuclear, natural gas, 
they have to essentially be responsive in such a way as to accommodate the intermittency of the renewables. So one thing that people don't necessarily consider when looking at renewables, although they're great for the environment, they're carbon, uh, zero carbon sources of electricity, they imply a certain amount of externality or, or have a negative impact on the other generators on the grid and that the other generators have to remove production when, say, solar production comes up and then they have to compensate for the drop in production when production falls off. So that could be the sun goes behind a cloud or it just gets dark or the wind stops blowing. And that's one thing that I guess most people don't necessarily consider. But that fact, baseload generators, the non-renewable ones, the non-intermittent ones, have to compensate for the intermittent ones actually is the limit for how much renewables can ultimately be put on the grid. So in a situation where you have very few renewables, say a couple percent, the intermittency is not a huge deal and the base loaders having to compensate for that intermittency is not a big deal. But as say you get up into 20, 30, 40% production coming from a new renewable source, that becomes a challenge both, both from a control standpoint, but also from economic standpoint. How how much is the variability between times of day on the on the power market? So there's variability in terms of, I guess, production in terms of the mix of that production. So yeah, I meant I meant on a price from a price perspective. Yeah, and and I mean they're 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 kind of intertwined. One's more on on a long term perspective. One is more on a short term perspective. So if we're talking about day to day, you the Texas last year experienced a day where 45% of its electricity came from wind. It's also had days where nearly 0% of its electricity has come from wind. So that tells you something about the impact that wind can have on sort of the economics of the base loaders over periods of time. Ba but base loaders, the, sorry, just to interrupt, I want to make sure our, our audience is clear. Base loaders being the m majority producer, which is usually like natural gas or coal or something like that, right? Yeah, or nuclear. Basically, the ones that are controlled. So some form of thermal power generation that you can ramp up or ramp down at will is what, what I'm kind of using the term baseloader to refer to. The variability from during the day, though, is based upon how much generation we have and how much demand we have. So if you look at demand, demand kind of peaks in the morning when people get up and then peaks when uh, people come home from work, they turn their lights on, maybe they're doing their wash, their air conditioning goes on. So those are kind of the two big demand times during the day. And those don't really complement well, say, the solar production curve, which, you know, does the majority of its production from, say, 7 or 8 a.m. to about 5 or 6 p.m. with the peak in the middle of the day. So uh, it doesn't really complement the, the demand curve as, as well as we might like. And, and because of that, the essentially excess generative capacity relative to the demand, say at night, would make prices in Texas be maybe a penny. They could be free sometimes. There's even instances where they go negative, so you actually get paid for consuming electricity. And then during the peak times, you'll very commonly see four to five X swings in price during the day. So if we say at night, average, maybe you get two cent electricity, but then average peak times, you'll see 10, 12 cent electricity. I've read about that, that especially like for wind producers, they will actually pay, I think particularly during the night, 
they will pay like five cents for people to take their power and it's still profitable for them because of subsidies. Is that, well, is that relatively common? Like that you can actually like being paid to take power in the middle of the night? Yeah. So the, there's a couple things. One is the reason that happens is because your, your wind producers are, are what we call zero marginal cost. So they, they don't have a unit cost for producing and it actually can be more costly for them to shut down or curtail their production. So they would rather just produce than, than have to curtail. The negative pricing is becoming less prevalent, especially if you look at Texas. So we have all this wind in West Texas, and there's these high, trans, or high voltage transmission lines that were built to Austin to actually use the energy that's generated. Initially, those lines kind of ended in Austin. And Austin didn't have enough demand relative to the supply that was being generated in West Texas. So they continued building lines to Houston. And then Houston has enough demand that even at night now, you don't typically see the, the negative pricing anymore. So it's it's not super common, there, but there all are situations where, where you see these imbalances. And the sort of people in charge, like the PUCs, try to make a uh, or change the infrastructure in such a way to kind of eliminate that negative pricing. Let's, let's transition a little bit to talking about the history of Grid Plus and why the, the two of you and, and your third founder, Mark D'Agostino, are knowledgeable and, and prepared to, to take this on. Yeah, I can, I can talk about that. This is Alex. So we came out of Consensus. Grid Plus is a spoke within Consensus. Consensus is... Well, it's many things, but but one of its <laughs> goals is to be an incubator for companies in the blockchain space and in particular the Ethereum space. So we were we're one of those companies, but all three of us were members of Consensus before Grid Plus um, was kind of conceived. So Consensus itself has been working on projects in the energy space since before the public chain was even launched, uh, the public Ethereum chain. So I think in early 2015, we started on a project called the Brooklyn Microgrid, and we developed the software for that. We worked with a, a company, uh, a local company in Brooklyn to develop the infrastructure, and we kind of proved out this idea of being able to tokenize electricity and trade it between peers. That project concluded, I think, at the end of 2015, maybe in 2016. We still get questions about it to this day, but that, that project has has been gone for a while. Um, well, there's still news articles that act as if it's going on currently, like every every few weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People people still ask us about it. It's it's confusing because I mean that that company may still be working um, on microgrids, but it's certainly not with the with the POC that we did together. So after that, we POC being proof of concept. Proof of concept, yes. Sorry. After that, we transitioned to a project called Cotricity. It was in conjunction with RWE, which is a oh, which was a German utility that's now rebranded into Energy. Uh, the, that's the, that's the company that's doing the pilot with charging stations, so being able to pay for electricity from a charging station using Ethereum. So they're doing some good stuff in the space. Uh, we worked with them in 2016 on Cotricity. That project kind of ended also the same year. And then we started on a third project, still kind of undisclosed. That one's still in development. We can't talk too much about it, but it was with a large company in Europe. And I was actually the lead engineer on that project. Mark was the, the strategy lead or really the client manager. This was a consulting engagement. And then we brought Carl on to be our sort of subject matter expert on the, the energy side, so the battery side as well. The three of us 
basically took what we were working on and created Grid, Grid Plus, and that, that was earlier in the year. We have been working on this, I mean, ar- arguably for a year and a half, including the previous project. But the, the goal is that we want to basically take everything that we've learned as consensus and really push this idea of this distributed grid of the future into fruition. So I think there's a lot of projects in the space that are working on basically Ethereum plus electricity equals future. And I I think everyone wants this idea of a decentralized grid. I think that there are a lot of different approaches. I think ours is pretty distinguishable from from most of the other ones. But that's kind of the history, and that's where we want to go with the project. So, so I just I just kind of want to add on to that. If if you look at the previous projects that we've done, a lot of it's been focused on this idea of doing peer to peer energy trading and using a blockchain, specifically Ethereum, as a method of distributed financial adjudication and settlement. And and there's been more sort of complications in that, and that, you know, we can do distributed markets, we can do autonomous agents that make decisions on behalf of the, the asset or customer. But, but fundamentally, they're all driving at this idea of having a peer-to-peer market. And that makes a lot of sense if you have distributed energy resources and you have the ability to make a decision, meaning you have the ability, not just generation, meaning solar, but you have the ability to either store the energy that you're generating, dispatch energy that you have generated, and or control some other smart energy load in, in an intelligent way, essentially based off market signals. The issue that we found is the although the blockchain itself can handle creating these peer-to-peer markets, and it can even scale such that these things could be accommodated, the issue with taking this to scale wasn't the blockchain. The issue was that there aren't areas of high penetrations of both batteries and solar panels. And because that, because you don't have the ability to essentially make a decision on, on how and when you're using your energy, there's really not a valid use case for the blockchain specifically in the peer-to-peer space at the moment given the current existing infrastructure and so with grid plus we step back and we ask ourselves well what value can be brought to the electricity markets with the existing infrastructure and what we came upon was that there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency in retail or residential electricity sales in deregulated markets. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to make uh, those electricity sales and are what's known as a retail electricity provider uh, significantly more efficient and lower the cost of residential electricity by 30 to 40 percent. So that was a pretty good like summary of like where you, where you want to go. Let's as a way of getting to talking about the the near future, can you explain the overview between generators and transmitters and retailers? Yeah, absolutely. When when I j- I just mentioned something about a deregulated market. So a deregulated market is essentially a market in which the government has made the market open to some degree of competition. This is in contrast to a regulated market, which is essentially a government-sanctioned monopoly where one company manages generation, transmission, distribution, and and 
retail sales. And there are there are about and, twenty deregulated markets and states in America. Is that right? Yeah. So it varies by states. It varies by location. I I don't know if the number's twenty. I would say it's fifteen to twenty. But there's varying degrees of deregulation. Sure. In any given state. So technically, California is a deregulated state, but it's really only kind of deregulated and only kind of deregulated on on the commercial and industrial side. It doesn't really give consumers a great ability to choose their energy supplier. Texas, on the other hand, is probably the most deregulated state, not only in the United States, but, but arguably in the world. And it's kind of a gold standard for what deregulation can do to lowering the price of energy and, and creating stable markets. So in these deregulated markets like Texas, you're, the, the markets are open to competition. So the markets can be roughly subdivided into four categories. You have generation, which is the actual creation of power. And normally when we talk about generators, we're talking about large coal fire power plants or nuclear or even, you know, uh, utility scale solar or, or wind or solar. And then you have the transmission, the transmitters, which are responsible for transmitting electricity over long distances at very high voltages. Then you have distribution, which is the local transmission of electricity, say in a city. And then you have the retailer and the retailer is responsible for essentially getting customers, buying electricity out of what are known as wholesale markets, and then repackaging that, selling it to their customers, and then doing account administration, billing. There's a little bit of financial hedging that goes on, but that's roughly how the, the market outlays. And in a deregulated market, generation is competitive, meaning the generators sell their energy into the wholesale markets, and retailing is competitive. So the retailers compete to sign up customers, and then they buy energy out of those wholesale markets and then sell it to their customers. And then in the middle, where you have the transmission and distribution, that's a regulated piece of the, the supply chain. And basically, when a retailer sells energy to its customer, it pays a fee or a tariff to what's called the DSO or distribution system operator as part of that sale. That's roughly how the market's structured. So at Grid Plus, when we talk about being a retailer, we actually aren't responsible for any sort of electrical infrastructure, right? We, we don't have any sort of wires that we're responsible for. We don't have any sort of production that we're responsible for. We're an administrative financial intermediary. I, I just kind of want to point that out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's marketing and billing, right? I mean, that is essentially what a, an, an electricity retailer, I'm, I'm in Texas, so I, I, I deal with you know, my electricity retailer, right? It's that's basically it. That's what they do. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. If you talk to them, they'll also say that, that they you know, do very advanced, I just did air quotes, so you guys all know, hedging strategies such that they can ensure that you have access to stable pricing over time. But in reality, they do a couple of things. If, if I'm going to break down, so, okay, let, let me explain sort of the price stack of what a retail electricity provider spends their money on in Texas, and I'll get you give you a better idea of what they're actually doing. Awesome. So in Texas, the price of electricity out of the wholesale markets with the distribution charges is roughly, say, $0.06. Cents. The cost of residential electricity on average is roughly 10 and a half or 11 cents. So the retail electricity provider is essentially marking up cost of electricity by almost 100% when they're selling it to a residential customer. So if we look at that margin of five or six cents, essentially 
25% of that margin goes to paying for the amateurization of non-paying customers' bad debts. So some percentage of customers between 4 and 5% will end up going into arrears, and, and that will become an uncollectible debt. And then the uh, electricity provider has to make up that debt by charging all their other customers a little bit more. And that ends up actually eating up about 20 to 25% of their total margin. The next thing that they spend money on is administration. So about a quarter of their money goes to administration. This is billing, this is customer service, this is also the, the measure of financial hedging and whatnot that they do, and that's about 25% of their cost. We think we can eliminate all bad debt costs because we're going to have our customers pay and settle for their electricity in real time using the blockchain. So there's not a possibility of bad debt. We think we can eliminate about half of the administrative costs because of these natively electronic systems in terms of, of billing administration, as well as the fact that we don't have to go through the activities of hedging quite as much. And so we think that will give us a, a price competitive advantage of about 35 to 37% of margin we can take out of that stack. Now, the last and most interesting piece of a retailer's margin is marketing costs. And an interesting stat about retailers in Texas is they have a 30% customer churn per year. So 30% of their customers will switch providers, and they have to spend a tremendous amount of money, uh, upwards of $250 per customer, to reacquire customers. And they need to reacquire 30% of those customers every year just to keep their customer base even. So they spend half of their margin doing marketing and customer acquisition to, to essentially stay ahead of that 30% customer churn. But we think if we have a structural price competitive advantage due to the fact that we've eliminated this issue of bad debts and we are more efficient at administrative and billing, that will have a virtuous effect and that we can actually compete on price and we won't have to spend nearly as much money on marketing. I guess maybe a little bit of background, which might be useful for people, is that in Texas, there is a site, I believe it's called powertochoose.com, that literally you go to, and that's like where I think most people go to, it's where I go to, and you pick your, your retail um, provider, and it's literally, it's all like laid out, their, their fees, and of course it's, it's not really as transparent as it should be, to be honest with you, but you, you can, if you do the work, get a pretty good idea as to actually what you are paying as a prospective consumer. So, I mean, that sounds great. You saying that you can give me cheaper power. Can you come launch in Houston? Uh, yes, we, we, we're planning to next year. So we're in the process of doing our, our token sale to raise some funds to essentially build out something uh, called our smart energy agent, which is sort of a critical piece to enabling uh, the average person or naive consumer to be able to securely and robustly utilize a blockchain. And then we're also in the process of having to do the application to become a retail electricity provider, and then as well as so uh, finishing up. How long, how long does that take and, and how much does that cost? All told, we're looking to hopefully get our first customer signed up in Q2 of next year. The, the retail electricity provider application, if everything goes well, takes about three months to get through. The agent hardware is probably the the most constraining bottleneck in terms of getting it up to a, a production scale device. And so, but, but we think Q2 is, is a reasonable timeline for us still. 
So, so no. it takes three months, and it's dealing with regulatory applications and paying lawyers and and whatnot. Is that generally? Yeah, that's part of it. You also have to minimum capital uh, requirement. Yeah, you have capital requirements. So the minimum capital requirement is around a million and a half dollars, but it, it's actually a little bit more if, if you want to be an open provider uh, throughout all competitive regions in Texas. So so there's some non-insignificant costs in terms of the application, in terms of the lawyers, in terms of you have to start up an office, you have to have customer service to put all this billing infrastructure in place. So it's, it's definitely not a trivial sort of endeavor. Did you just commit to doing Houston as your first market or just as one of the markets next year? Oh, it will be one of the markets next year. We are shooting to serve all of the competitive markets in Texas. So that's encompassing of roughly 85% of the households in Texas. And the two biggest markets are Houston and Dallas. So I think this is a good way to, to get into all of the things that Grid Plus does. Assume that you are live in the wonderful metropolis of Houston, Texas, where I live. Walk me through the process of everything that I'm going to do and assume I know nothing about Ethereum. I go to Power to Choose and I click Grid Plus because it's the cheapest and then what happens? You would go to our website and you would just sign up like you would with any other provider. We would ship you a agent device. So that would, that would come in the mail. It's Wi-Fi enabled. So you plug it in, connect it to your local Wi-Fi. And at that point, you would make a deposit. This is basically pre-purchasing electricity. What we're doing on the back end is that we're converting that deposit. And it's, it would be through a credit card or a wire transfer. But we would be converting that into a stable coin. Oh, and also for, for any listeners out there who are curious, yes, we will accept Ether as well. So if you would like to pay for your electricity with Ether, you're welcome to do so. But for, no, for normal customers who don't know anything about this stuff, they would just prepay with a credit card. And that deposit would go to their agent, and then the agent would do all the work for them. The agent would be purchasing electricity every 15 minutes. It would be trying to anticipate the, the load that the household would need for the day ahead. So that it could uh, Load purchase some electricity. Yeah, correct. Make sure it's clear for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So they would be anticipating the the amount that you would consume, so that it could find the cheapest rates on day ahead markets rather than consuming in real time, which is more expensive. And it would just be purchasing energy until it ran out of funds, and then you would get a little notification when you were running low, and you would just go and top it off. You'd have a mobile app with your credit card added to it, and you would just press a button to add another twenty bucks or something, and then it would go back to work purchasing electricity for you every 15 minutes. I understand that you, you essentially use the prepaid deposit. That's how you get rid of the 25% of bad debt. And that's how you, you know, in part, that's how you get good customers. And that's how you make my electricity cheaper. Are you, so I'm putting down a deposit and then you're also going to be either taking money from my bank account by ACH every, every month or, or is it from my credit card or? Nope. So when you pay us with a credit card, that's the only um, those are the only funds that we have access to. We convert those to a stablecoin, then transfer them to your agent. So you now you haven't actually paid us yet because you now have these stablecoins on your agent that your device controls because they are ERC twenty tokens. So you only pay us every fifteen minutes through sending uh, payments via that agent. So how does that, I'm, uh, okay, so maybe I'm thinking of this wrong. I was thinking that sort of like I prepay a certain amount and then and then I get invoiced every every month. It sounds like that's not the case. It's more like I pay and, and then it takes until it gets to a certain minimum and then you ask me to sort of top up so that. So, so you could, you could optionally have it such that 
it could top up with your interaction or just top up automatically. But that would be sort of an independent transaction, either via the ACH or, or the or the credit card. To kind of dial back what we're doing and, and simplify it a little bit, it might be easier to think of it from an Ethereum standpoint. And basically, the agent is a secure, always online, uh, crypto-enabled IoT gateway device. And you're basically putting Ethereum on your agent. The agent reads the smart meter, knows how much money it owes us, and then creates a transaction to send us that money every 15 minutes as Ethereum. The issue, so that's a very simple model, right? So you're essentially literally paying for your electricity in real time, right? You, you put money on the agent and it pays us as you're consuming it. Nice and simple. The problem with that is that the majority of consumers don't want to know about cryptocurrencies don't want to have to think about cryptocurrencies or understand them or more importantly take on the forex risk associated with owning them the question is then how can you make a system for the people that at least at present don't care to deal with cryptocurrencies and so the way that we're addressing that issue is through the creation of what alex referred to the USD stable token, which we call the Bolt. In the case where a user doesn't want to use Ether as a mechanism of settlement, we convert their deposit into a Bolt token or a USD stable token, which then sits on their agent. So instead of having Ether on their agent, they now have Bolt on their agent. So they still have funds that they can use to pay for their electricity in real time. It's just those funds happen to be funds that we issue to them and that we will redeem from them but they still have possession of on their agent, and then their agent is paying us over over the uh, over the month. I guess this is a good way to talk about payment channels because if you're taking it every 15 minutes from a lot of different devices, you would pay a lot in gas on the on the blockchain. So tell me tell me about how your payment channels make um, does does away with that. Do you anticipate settling them every month? This kind of depends on the development cycle of Raiden. Initially, we had planned to settle them every month and use um, homemade payment channels. They're just basically simple, one-way. Grid Plus is always the counterparty, and uh, the customer is always the sender, and we just close them out periodically. Raiden has released a new micro-Raiden framework that we're going to investigate using from day one. It may not be necessary to to close the channels themselves. I, I have to look more into how how this how, how micro raiding works. But but conce- conceivably, we could withdraw from the committed deposit uh, periodically instead of closing out the channel. But that's I mean the, those details aren't super important right now. The but the reason that Raiden looks really interesting from a future perspective and another. Another reason why um, using these Bolt stablecoins becomes especially compelling um, and makes a good argument for blockchain is that if consumers own um, these distributed energy resources like solar panels and batteries and they sell power back into the grid, then they earn, they earn credits for whatever they sold to the grid. So it, it, if, they, if they actually net generate over a period of time, we would pay them out Bolts. Um, and then they could reuse those when they, you know, consume power or they can redeem them with Grid Plus. So once we get people into the system and once we get get people earning crypto, we can we can sort of minimize the amount of interaction that we need to do with legacy rails. 
so that that's one part that I find pretty exciting. And then and then another part this is maybe a little bit further down the the roadmap, but long term what we see is these generators who have these, you know, solar panels and batteries setting their own prices and just being nodes on on the Raiden network. So everyone would be connected to the Grid Plus hub because they would need to be uh, they would need a service provider to to plug into the uh, electric grid. So that's always going to be us. But because we only are looking at sort of like net meter accounting, um, we could envision a scenario where Alice pays Bob for, for power that he generated. And that transaction is actually a peer-to-peer transaction. And from Grid Plus's perspective, we don't actually have to be a party to that. But those users are both still on the platform. So what this gives us over time is just like a much more economically and uh, efficient pricing model. And we see Ethereum and, and the Raiden network in particular being sort of this transactive layer we can use to, to build this distributed peer-to-peer energy grid. So the peer-to-peer grid part is really interesting to me because, of course, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, our power grid is built to, you know, quote unquote, push, push power downhill, right? Basically, all power gets pushed downhill. So you can, it's, it's relatively difficult as I understand it, I'm not really an expert here, but the, to, to push power back up, up upgrade to other places. So you would basically need to be on the substation level, I, I guess it would be, or, or a certain like relatively local level. You would be able to trade power between your neighbors. Is, is that about? Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's actually a really good description. So the idea of actual peer to peer, as in I'm sending electricity from from Bob to Alice doesn't physically take place, right? It's, as you say, the, the electricity just flows uh, downhill or to the point sort of the lowest potential as fast as it can. So when we're, we're talking about peer-to-peer, what we're really referring to is is more geographically specific markets, which is, is known as locational marginal pricing. So instead of having these nodes where wholesale pricing clears, uh, maybe there's you know, seven, eight, ten nodes in the state where wholesale pricing clears, you could actually have more and more nodes with with different pricing based off of localized supply and demand. And if you take it to its sort of uh, endpoint conclusion, it would be at the last transformer at each neighborhood, essentially. So each neighborhood would be its own spot market. And the price there could be slightly different than the neighborhood down the street because of the localized supply and demand in that neighborhood relative to the neighborhood down the street. So so peer-to-peer is really like the neighborhood's trading energy and the neighborhood and the neighborhood next to its trading energy. And there's some uh, dis- disparate pricing between the two based off localized supply and demand, but they're connected such that the neighborhood you know, down the street has excess supply. They can sell it into my neighborhood if, if I don't have sufficient supply. But I would be encouraged to essentially find the supply which has the least amount of distribution cost, or rather the least aggregate total cost in terms of uh, production costs, so so electricity costs, as well as the the distribution cost. So the closer I am, the lower sort of the the distribution cost would be. So that's how you sort of get disparity in, in and pricing on on a locational basis. So I think you might have a- answered my next question, which was going to be 
like I understand the lower pricing based on on time of day. That makes a lot of sense. It's cheaper during the night. It's expensive at six p.m. But your white paper suggests more, and it talks about like locational, and it's essentially it's essentially this what you're talking about, which is that in your you know in your local on the neighborhood, I guess it's like. Uh, transfer is probably like 200 houses like local level it might be a little bit different than than even like the neighborhood a couple blocks away or whatever is there anything else that would impact the the potential like price as well yeah well so i mean it's supply and demand as well as the sort of distribution costs right so right now especially for residential customers the distribution costs are fixed it's you know so many cents per per kilowatt hour it doesn't really matter when it happens for a given area, you know, you'll pay three cents, three and a half cents or something for distribution. In the future, that's not really like an efficient way to calculate pricing sort of on this fixed flat rate basis. You should really calculate pricing based off of how much resource you're actually using. And that includes how much distribution resource you're actually using. So if you have dynamic charges, which say, okay, here's how much of the distribution network I used as well as charges related to congestion because the distribution network itself is a mechanism of supply and over time the demand changes so at, you know at peak times when the distribution network is is really uh, transferring a lot of electricity it's congested so it's not as efficient people should essentially have to pay a higher economic price or rate for using that infrastructure at that point in time because there's more demand than there is supply essentially and so that dynamic pricing of the distribution resources over time, as well as more accurately measuring the amount of distribution that you're actually using, is what gets the sort of uh, disparities in these these locational marginal prices, right? Because it may be easier to get energy in one place because there's more distributive capacity and or there's more supply relative demand than another place. We always hear that batteries are not economical, essentially, like batteries and solar are not economical and they're they're getting better, but um, they're not there. You say in your white paper that if we had dynamic pricing, which is essentially like, you know, a, a penny for power at 2 a.m., but, you know, 15 cents or 20 cents during peak times, then if you had this dynamic pricing and you were charging that instead of just the flat 13% rate, then the battery would actually already be economical for people to buy because then it could buy power at one cent and then not buy it at 20 cents. They could use the, the cheap power. Yeah, exactly. So there's, that's I, exciting. I would, I would con- yeah, <laughs> I would contend a couple of things to kind of, you, you know, you mentioned that solar and batteries aren't economical. So, there's a couple things to sort of unpack there. So residential solar is actually uh, pretty competitive now. So in the United States, it's somewhere between seven and eight cents levelized cost of energy to produce energy off a solar panel. So if you say seven or eight cents, wow. Well, I said earlier, you know, your average energy cost in Texas are around 11. So I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? I'm already cheaper, but you only have solar during the daytime. So what do you, what do, you do about nighttime? And so if you have a battery, the price of a battery now is as low as 12 cents per warranted kilowatt hour. So you can essentially store a kilowatt and over the life of the battery and, and you know, sort of looking at its total capital cost and, and installation cost, that costs about 12 cents to do. But if you were to couple solar with a battery in, say, a market like Texas, you could actually get 
an average energy cost maybe of like 16, 17 cents. So it's slightly higher than the 11 cents. You do have to realize that many markets in the country are much higher than those 11 cents, right? In New York, you could pay 22, 24, 25. Uh, I think California is in the high teens. So in a lot of these other markets, coupling a battery with a solar panel and sort of charging up the, the battery midday and then using that energy at peaking times and at night, you can essentially self-consume and you can be sort of this independent power station consumer from the grid and at a more economically efficient price point. The, the issue that we find, though, is that a lot of the sort of incentives and the price structures that exist today don't allow people to fully take advantage of, of adding these assets to the grid. And one great example of that is if you look at Austin Energy, actually will pay you a penny more for your solar production than you have to pay them to buy electricity. So they actually disincentivize this idea of using a battery even though putting solar on the grid, although it's green and we all love it, is actually creating a technical challenge for everybody else on the grid if it's not paired with a battery. But if you actually reflect the appropriate economic pricing during the day to those people, so instead of paying them a penny more, they would actually look at it and they say, well, if I put a battery in here, I can self-consume, I can levelize out sort of my production curve, I'm putting less detrimental impact on the grid, and it would be like a net benefit for everybody. And so that's one of the things that's going to happen when we introduce or the consumer to a little bit more exposure to the actual economic price of what they're buying, is that they'll make better decisions about what they do in terms of, you know, green energy, buying solar panels and buying batteries. And then by putting sort of this transactional layer in on Ethereum, we're going to allow them to take advantage of that and then pay back their assets over time, which I think is great. Like, what would what would come after Texas? Is part of the long-term goal here that people see, like, how much cheaper you can make power and then get laws changed that modernize their regulation in other states? So there's, there's a couple of approaches. One is just naturally building and growing the market in Texas, but Texas is really meant to be a production-scale demonstration of blockchain for the first time in a consumer application that has nothing to do with blockchain and proving that it can actually add economic efficiency. Once we do that, there's a number of uh, utilities, very large utilities that we're working with, one of which we'll be announcing hopefully in the next week or so that we would license the technology to and they would implement it in one of the other deregulated markets around the world. So outside of just Texas, there's also the other deregulated states in the U.S., but then there's also other countries in the world that have deregulated electricity markets, including Australia, Japan, the U.K., Germany, and so on. So the utilities that operate there could essentially license our technology to implement sort of the grid plus stack in the other markets. My, my next question, I guess, should be about the agent. Uh, w we talked about it a little bit, but it's, it's pretty cool because it enables, and you know, you can find your blog post online. I don't know if we have time to get into it, but all of the, the cool things that, that you've done about keeping it, it safe. But Yeah, so one of the, um, the, the agent development, it's kind of a different thread than the energy stuff. Um, 
but architecturally, you can kind of think of managing your your electricity bill and then your resources, so like your solar panels and batteries, as sort of like an application on top of this this agent. So at a very basic level, the from a technical perspective, the agent is a a combination of a general purpose computer and also a secure enclave. The the cryptographic key pair is kept in the enclave and functionally what this what this separate enclave does is just make cryptographic signatures that'll be something like um, sgx intel sgx yeah it's something something similar okay. um and then it's yeah so it's, pre- it's pretty similar to a ledger um a ledger nano s except that the idea is that we want the general gpu uh, or not gpu uh, the general purpose compute part um to always be online if we go away from the energy stuff for a little bit and just talk about this agent, we think this is a really interesting concept because this is a missing piece of infrastructure in the crypto world that we think is going to have a pretty tremendous impact in the next couple of years. So if you look at some of these projects that are coming online and in development right now, if you look at things like the Raiden network, if you look at, you know, Casper and, and, um, proof of stake. If you look at plasma and you look at, you know, like higher level chains that settle down to the Ethereum chain. If you look at Polkadot, which is another, you know, sort of blockchain multiverse kind of setup. The thing that all of these have in common is that you have this set of validators who are watching the network and basically making sure that things are being submitted and um, propagated properly, right? So the, the reason these things are there are to pre- prevent basically malicious behavior that, that, can, be, that can be proved mal- uh, malicious or at least incorrect very easily. But someone has to be there to see that be submitted and then also to submit that proof. In order to incentivize people or agents to, to do these things, you generally have a type of token or some sort of reward system. So at, at a fundamental level, what we want from this agent is for it to function as one of one of those kind of watcher agents to to generate revenue streams for the customer. We want this to be a way to enable sort of passive revenue streams by acting as a participant on all of these different networks. And that is that is kind of a long-term goal, but we think we think that it's a really interesting one and we think that it's a it, it's just this this crucial piece of infrastructure that just like needs to be there for for this for this blockchain world to sort of unfold. So if I if I sign up with Grid Plus and I get my agent, then not all and I get a battery. Not only can I essentially start paying very little in electricity because I'm storing my my electricity and then giving it to the network back when it's when it's expensive, but I can also maybe make this a profitable endeavor for me by also staking and running an Infura node or something like that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The future is now. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So so we want this to be an open platform that people can develop these sort of adapters for um, so that these agents can, can function as these actors. I think w- one thing that I've said for a long time, I, I said this at Rice. I think you saw my talk when I was there. I, I've always believed that the main actors, like the main user base, of Ethereum and of all of these networks are not going to be humans. They're, they're going to be machines that are paying for paying micropayments, um, watching networks, you know, validating that transactions are correct. Um, we're, we're going to have this fleet of independent, motivated 
um, economically motivated rational actors that that are basically these these machines that that just run around these networks and and do things for us. So yeah, that's that's the long term vision that we have. So the the, the other thing that I kind of want to talk about regards to the agent is the idea of security of cryptocurrencies or blockchain assets and friction associated with them. And so the, the first thing I want to look at is security. So right now, if you have Bitcoin or Ethereum and you want to store it securely in any large amount, you're going to typically use some mechanism to pull those keys offline, either via a hardware wallet and or backup phrase or a key that's sort of printed out and stored somewhere. And the interesting thing there is, is that the actual security now of these electronic assets boils down to an individual's ability to physically protect those assets in the real world. So we're, we're actually back into a system where it's essentially like gold, right? I can bury it, I can hide it, but like fundamentally, if somebody finds my gold, they find my key, they find my you know backup phrase, they can, they can get my funds. Uh, so this really isn't a great state of the you know security world because what we purport when we talk about cryptocurrencies is creating the future of money and this idea of having to physically secure money is is not a great one and then the idea of having to do it in a way such that it's offline and i have to reconstitute one or more keys and put it on a computer to be able to spend that those funds uh, that's not you know a good topology either in terms of you know, barrier to use and friction. And if we look at what we need to do to make the system actually better than the incumbent system is we have to make the security better than what we have today such that we actually lower costs and we have to make the friction element at least comparable to what we have today. So when we think about the security and the costs associated with security in the current financial system, a lot of that has to do with Say if you look at a visa charge, you know people say that Visa takes three percent of a of a credit card transaction. In reality, Visa doesn't take three percent of a credit card transaction. They take 0.1 percent of a credit card transaction. The other two or three percent that's left over uh, that a merchant pays ends up going to the card issuer's bank, and the majority of that money is actually used to deal with fraud. We always talk about having a low cost of transaction, but I think we have a low cost of transaction because we don't actually accurately measure the the costs associated with fraud, uh, with loss of funds, or with theft of funds. But in the Visa world, uh, those are measured because they're insured. And so we have to design a security topology where we actually have fraud, theft, and loss low enough that it's more competitive than the 3% on the Visa network. The other thing we have to look at is friction. If I use my Visa card, I put my card in the slot and within three seconds I've paid for something. If I'm talking about this topology, even if I have a ledger, I still have to go find my ledger, I have to enter my PIN number, I have to plug it into my computer, and I have to constitute a transaction. It's at least 10, 20, 30, 100 times more time to pay for something with securely stored Ether than it is to pay with a Visa card. And so that's the other thing that the agent is answering because you have this always online environment that has keys stored in this delocalized way. You've 
created a system where you're gonna not you're gonna have a very low level of fraud, loss, or theft, but you're also gonna have a very low barrier to use, and that by simply entering a PIN number and hitting send, you can can uh, make a transaction, and so the the friction to actual using the funds is then comparable with with the Visa network. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a, a making Ethereum usable um, for. It's ma- it's making all blockchains usable, like at scale for actual real business cases for consumers. Is is kind of what we see it as. It's 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 a critical stepping stone to getting mass adoption of blockchain based assets and cryptocurrencies. So th- this is great. Tell me tell me about your token. You're doing a token sale in late October. I believe it's the thirtieth. Yeah, that that's that's correct. We are we've been doing our pre sale. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, and we are closing that up shortly here. On October 30th, we will start with our uh, regular sale. The grid token itself is um, a sort of voucher on the Grid Plus platform for for the right to purchase energy at wholesale. So, so we talked about how traditional utilities will mark up somewhere near 100%. Um, Grid Plus would like to be much lower than that, but realistically, we can probably only get down to 30% markup. Anyone who has redeemed Grid tokens will get that 30% waived entirely for, for 500 kilowatt hours. So if you redeem one Grid token, and let's say you, you use 10 kilowatt hours a day, once you redeem that for the next 50 days, your power is going to be at the wholesale rate. So whatever you buy it at, there's no markup. It goes directly to you at that price. And that that's that's basically the function of the grid token. And that's available to any any grid plus customer, even with our partner utilities. Um, we will we will require that that some number of grid tokens be redeemable every you know every redemption period. When when I, so when I I buy Grid Plus tokens and then I redeem them and pay wholesale rates, what happens to that token after I redeem it? Yeah, it get, it gets burned. So I wrote a EIP. Um, I think it was six twenty one, if I recall correctly, maybe six sixty one. But anyway, it's referenced in the the token sale page. Um, it basically is a uh, a function on top of the ERC twenty standard. And it's called provable burn. So you pass a signature into this function that comes from the address that owns the the grid tokens, and it decrements um, both that user's balance and then also the total supply. So it, it affects that 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 total supply of of like all tokens in existence. So eventually, one day, we get this question sometimes: if all is successful, there will one day be zero grid tokens because everyone will have used them up and everyone will be on grid plus. And we will have a peer-to-peer decentralized power grid. So that's the goal. Well, that's that's fantastic, guys. Thanks for coming on the program today. Where can people learn more about you? Yeah, so anyone who's interested can go to gridplus.io. It should have all of the information you need. You can also follow us on Twitter for updates. We're, we're gridplus, one word, underscore energy. And then I... I'm uh, Ethereum underscore Alex on Twitter. And I'm Mechanical K, last C is a K, so K-A-L-K uh, on Twitter as well. And and awesome. So the token sale is October 30th. I am Evan Van Ness. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.